But the book of Romans is a book, uh, this wonderful New Testament epistle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. And he has been writing about life-changing, wonderful theology, the theme, of course, being the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And we know that Paul then would make the case that we all need the gospel because we're sinners. He tells us of the provision of the gospel that is by faith through Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died for you and for me and he rose from the grave. And then he writes about the blessing and the benefits of the gospel. And of course in chapter 8 he ends by telling us that nothing can separate us from the, the love of Christ. And as he's marveling at that truth, and, and, and I just picture him, he's breaking out in praise as he's writing that, inspired by the Spirit of God. He then, in chapter 9, turns to his countrymen. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, if you're new to our study, he is addressing his countrymen, the Jews. And he, first of all, in chapter 9, begins to talk about how he has a continual grief and sorrow for his countrymen because they have not come to the love of Jesus Christ. They have not come to righteousness that only comes through faith in him. They haven't come to, to know that. So he says that he continually prays for them, even though they persecuted him, even though they caused him much conflict in his ministry because he came saying that you're not going to be righteous in according to the law of Moses or you're going to be righteous only by faith in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 9, he talks about the past situation with Israel. He says that you guys were benefited, you were blessed in that you had the covenant, you had the blessings, the call of God to serve him and to follow after him. God sovereignly chose you. Uh, the covenant went through Abraham and then went through Isaac. It wasn't through Ishmael. And, and he accepted Jacob and he rejected Esau. And you had the blessings in that, that God sovereignly chose you to be a people to himself. But then in chapter 10, he writes about their present situation, that you have sought to establish your own righteousness through the law rather than the righteousness that only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he makes that wonderful declaration that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then last week as we began to move into this final section of uh, his emphasis on the nation of Israel, his, his countrymen, the Jews, Paul points out that first of all, he writes in verse one, I'll read it to you again, that I say then has God cast away his people. Uh, and he says, certainly not. It's in the strongest of terms. No way he has not done with his people Israel. And he is making the case as we go through this, that first of all, that there is a remnant has, that has been saved. Look at me, I'm from Israel. I'm an Israelite, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he gave a second example as he goes back to the Old Testament and he talks about Elijah, that fiery prophet that we read about in 1 Kings 18 and 19, how he called down fire from heaven there on Mount Carmel. He slew the prophets of Baal. But then that, that uh, threatening uh, message came to him by Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, uh, the king of the 10 northern tribes, that Elijah, I'm going to kill you. So he runs all the way down to the mountain of God. He's hiding in the cave. He says, I alone am left. And you're out of troops, Lord. There's no one left to follow you. They've all forsaken you. And the Lord comes along and says that Elijah, listen, that's not true. I have a remnant that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that, that false uh, God that they were worshiping 
being there in the house of Israel. I still have a remnant. And so he's been telling us that there's a remnant that has come to salvation. Their eyes have been opened up to the truth concerning Christ. So Israel's rejection is not total. In other words, that we know that as he will say later in this chapter, that blindness has come in part to Israel. Not, not every one of, of the Jews uh, is lost. Some have had their eyes opened up to the gospel message. He, as he points to himself, as he points to uh, the case in the Old Testament, but also we know that the early church were mostly Jewish believers. So Israel's rejection is not total, and we're going to see again later as we continue through this chapter that it's not final, that there is a promise that God has given to them, and that is he's going to restore the nation. We see those promises all throughout the Old Testament. And here at Calvary Chapel, we go through the Old Testament books. And as we going through that section, we just got done with the book of Isaiah. We saw many promises in Isaiah. Isaiah, write these visions down. And these, these things will come to pass. Not that they might come to pass, but they will come to pass in the latter days. And Isaiah writes about the millennium reign of Christ, how the Messiah is going to come, who they had been waiting for. And he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is going to be the glory of God that's going to be shown. And, and Israel is going to be the glory to the other nations. And, and the Messiah is going to sit upon the throne of David. All these things that we see that are promised to them. And of course, as I discussed last week, that there's a theology that is actually gaining popularity in some circles of Christianity and even evangelical churches called replacement theology, that God has uh, rejected them, that the promise promises that he gave to them are null uh, and, and void and uh, no longer for Israel, that the church now is spiritual Israel, and those promises are for us. We know that as we look at the scriptures very carefully, that he says that there's going to be a time when the nation is going to be restored. And when we talk about the restoration of Israel, we're talking about a time when their eyes are going to be opened up and they're going to realize that Jesus was their Mashiach. Even Jesus spoke about it. I think I quoted this last week, that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, as he's weeping over Jerusalem, and as he says, how I long to gather you to myself as the mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will be that time as Zechariah writes, that they will look on the one whom they have pierced <clears throat> and they will say as they mourn for him, where did you get those wounds? And he will say, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And so Israel is going to be restored. Their eyes are going to be opened someday. And Paul in this chapter that he writes that in that day, all of Israel is going to be saved. So it's important for us to understand that God will keep his promise to them. And that encourages me. Because the promises that God gives to me, he's going to fulfill those promises. So let's continue to look at, uh, as we talk about the restoration of Israel, and keep in mind that if you adhere to replacement theology, then you've got to redefine hundreds of verses of the Old Testament, reinterpret them, 
or ignore them. And all throughout the Old Testament, as we will go through the, continue the section of the prophets, we will see that that is spoken about. I'm going to read to you from Zechariah chapter 8, and just an example of that, as he talks about the time Jerusalem and uh, the holy city and the future of Jerusalem. Again, the word of the Lord, I'll just read it to you, of hosts says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm zealous for Zion. Zion is the name for Jerusalem with great zeal, and I will return to Zion and dwell in, in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, and each one with the staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I like that. When God comes back, Jesus, that is, God in, in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, when he comes back in the second coming, that he will come and establish his kingdom and establish the millennium reign. And that's all part of the restoration of Israel. And we know that uh, as he establishes his kingdom, that Isaiah talks a lot about children will play with the cobra and not be hurt. And here is uh, Zechariah says that boys and girls will play in the street and they'll be safe. Um, uh, it'll be uh, safe for them to be able to do that. We can't say that today, can we? And he goes on and he says, it's marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of his people in these days. Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? And behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So he's talking about that time where his people are going to come. And the glory of, of Israel, the glory of Jerusalem. And again, as we know that as Jesus would be ready to ascend up into heaven that it was Jesus that said to his disciples that listen wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the upon of the Holy Spirit and and they would ask him are you going to restore the nation of Israel is this the time that you're going to do that and Jesus said it's not for you to know the times and the seasons but Jesus did not say oh you know by the way you guys that promise no longer is for Israel. It's going to be the church. Uh, that's going to be spiritual Israel. We know that God is going to be faithful in bringing his promises to Israel. And this chapter is going to explain that to us very carefully and, and very directly. God has a plan for the church. And he has a plan for Israel. And we see that nationally that they have come back into the land. And that's very important for us to understand because... Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy. And if we're going to understand end-time prophecy, we have to look at Israel and know that Israel will be back in the land. And we will see that very clearly as we go through, continue the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, especially as we get to that, that section of chapters 6 through 18 that talk about the tribulation period. But as we look at this, we know that um, picking up our text, as Paul's talking about, as we left off last time, that they were blinded, those who have rejected the Savior, Jesus and their need for him. At one time, uh, before we came to Christ, we were spiritually blind, weren't we? It's interesting that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Paul writes that Satan, the God, little g of this age, has blinded the unbelievers. And you and I, before we came to Jesus Christ, spiritually, we were blinded, weren't we? I can't help but think about that story in John chapter 9. Many of us, we know it. The whole chapter is devoted 
to the story of Jesus who came to that man who was born blind and Jesus wipes mud on his eyes, tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam, and he did. And as he washed, that man all of a sudden was healed. He could see. And as word began to spread that that man who was born blind, all of a sudden Jesus healed him, the religious leaders grabbed him. And they begin to bully him. They begin to intimidate him. They're, they're asking him questions and overwhelming him. You know, how did this happen? And who did this? And how did he do this? And, and the blind man says, going, who was one previously blind, of course, he's going, I don't know. You know, Jesus touched me. And as they continue to press him, and they're about ready to kick him out of the synagogue and excommunicate him, that man said this. He said, I do know this that I was blind and now I see. And that is a testimony that every single one of us that have come to Christ, that we have that testimony. We may not understand everything, but we were born, you know, spiritually blind. We were spiritually dead, as Ephesians 2 talks about. And we know that as Jesus, that as he's opened up our eyes and he's brought healing to us, that we have that testimony, that I was blind, but now I see. And it's a wonderful testimony to have. But also, as Paul, he writes about that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the unbelievers. That helps me to pray for that person that is linked to me in my life that isn't saved. That family member. Maybe that child, that grandchild that you have. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker or somebody that you go to school with. That they're on your heart as you pray for them. You pray that, Lord, open up their eyes. They're blinded right now. Understand that. Paul would even say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. Have you ever talked to anybody about the things of the Lord and they just kind of look at you like deer in the headlights? They have no understanding of what's being said because they don't understand. They don't understand the things of the Spirit. So to pray, Lord, you give them understanding. Draw them by, their Holy, by the Holy Spirit. Open up their eyes that they may see your provision and your goodness. Lord, that the gospel, how much you love them, that you sent your son to die for them, that they might be forgiven. And it's a good prayer during this time of the year as we're heading towards Easter, as you're ministering to those who don't know the Lord, as you invite them out to services, or you explain the gospel yourself to them, Lord, open up their eyes. But as we talk about spiritual blindness, and while we're on this subject, that not only do we see that mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you know that Paul's talking about Israel, that blindness has come to them in part. Um, and, and we know that unbelievers are blinded. But also that I think we can bring it home a little bit closer. Because when we talk about spiritual blindness, I think that we can see what can happen if we are involved in sin, if we continue in sin, if we ignore God's truth given to us and his ways, if we ignore his warnings given to us, that it can cause a blindness. Just ask Samson. Samson, you know his story in the Old Testament, that Samson was the, the judge of Israel. God had given him great strength, and Samson quit. He, he continued to, to play around with sin. He continued in it. He continued in it. He was in a place that he shouldn't have been. He's in the enemy's territory. He's in a relationship that he shouldn't have been. And all of a sudden, the Philistines come upon him. And what did they do? They plucked out his eyes. And you see, if you ignore the warnings of the Lord, 
when it comes to sin and carnality and how you are to live, listen, there will be a blindness that will come. And you will find yourself going into the enemy's territory. And you know what the enemy wants to do? He wants to do what he did to Samson. Samson, the Philistines came and plucked his eyes out. They bound them up. They put him on a big millstone and he's grinding the grain. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to blind you. He wants to bind you. And he wants to grind you. He wants to grind you into the ground. Don't ignore what the Lord is saying to you. If you're continuing in carnality or sin in any sort. Don't allow that blindness to continue because it will do you in and it will wipe you out. Just ask Samson. He found out the hard way. But also as we're talking about spiritual blindness, maybe it's ringing a bell with you, those of you who are here on Wednesday. As we finish that letter, the seventh letter to the seventh church of Revelation chapter 3. The church of Laodicea. You see, they were churches we've talked about. They were very wealthy, Laodicea was. And they were ones that they were in the entertainment. They had the Roman circus there, the amphitheater. They are ones that they said, we have need of nothing. And Jesus comes along and he talks about their lukewarmness. You're lukewarm. And because you're neither hot or cold, you're lukewarm. I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, as we read that, that's harsh words that Jesus is saying to that church. It's the harshest of words to any of the seven churches. Your lukewarmness, you think that you have need of nothing. You think you're rich, that you got everything in place. You're into entertainment. You have need of nothing. And behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Would you please let me in? But your lukewarmness has caused me to be nauseous. It makes me sick is what Jesus literally was saying. And he says, you think that you're doing well, but you don't even understand that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And a blindness will come to you and to me if we think that, Lord, I'm self-reliant. I really don't need you in these areas of my life. I have need of nothing. The Lord says that there's a blindness that takes place. So as we talk about blindness that had come to Israel because they had rejected the Messiah, we pick up our text at verse 8, and also there's a spirit of stupor. Let's read in verse 8. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So here Paul quoting from the Old Testament. And, and by the way, little side note here. Have you noticed that he does that oftentimes? He has done it throughout the book of Romans. He, he gives the gospel. He gives the truth. And he backs it up because he knows that his countrymen, the Jews, are going to be reading. They were familiar with the scriptures. He didn't want them to think, well, Paul's given this new revelation, this new thought, this new opinion. But he backs it up with Old Testament scripture oftentimes. You see that pattern throughout the New Testament. Jesus, oftentimes the religious leaders came to him and they would try to trap him, back him into a corner, accuse him. And Jesus oftentimes would answer, have you not read? As it is written, you're mistaken. That would make the religious leaders furious because they were ones that they thought were experts in the scripture. We know every dot and tittle of the scripture. So the Lord would say, you're mistaken. It is written. And he would take them back to the word of God. 
He did that in the temptation uh, there in the wilderness of Satan. But a good Bible teacher is going to do this, is going to take you to the scriptures as we go through it, that, that a good Bible teacher is going to be in line with what the scripture has to say. The reason that I'm parking on this a little bit, folks, is this. It's because there can be teachers out there, Christian teachers, that are deemed to be so dynamic and so, you know, motivational and, and incredible uh, teachers that what they say is so pleasing to the flesh. It, 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 it sounds so good, but are you checking it out with the scripture? There are those that will put things on social media and things like that, and they'll say, watch this YouTube and, and know this. Well, check it out with the scriptures. Check me out with the scripture. And that's what a good Bible teacher will do. We'll keep in the context of the scripture and to know this, that Paul would write to Timothy, and he said that in the last days that it's going to be those who are going to depart from the faith. And they're going to have itchy ears, wanting their ears to be tickled. And they're going to heap up from themselves teachers that are given over to myths and fables. So John says in his epistle that we are to test the spirits to see if they are of God. So you and I, that we are to check everything out, what we're hearing and what we're seeing and what's popular. I don't care how popular it is. And in my years of ministry, it's been amazing how things have come blowing through the church and Christians get all worked up over it. This new revival, this new thing, this, you know, is taking place. This is what's popular. And you can check it out with scripture and you can see that it's not of God. People get all worked up over it. It becomes popular. But is it according to scripture? The scripture is our final authority. Are we clear on that? And the reason that I'm saying that is because Jesus, again, as we know that in the last days that there's going to be ears that want to be tickled, we know that Jesus would say that there's going to be many false teachers and prophets that will come on the scene. He didn't say a few, but there's going to be many. And we also know that the day is going to come, and we will see this as we continue through the book of Revelation, that there will be one that will rise up on the scene as a world leader. And the book of Daniel tells us that he's going to be, according to the world, speaking great things. He's going to be seen as a great orator. Daniel really emphasizes that. The world's going to turn to him and say he speaks great things. He's a great debater. He has the answers to the problems. He's the greatest leader that we've ever seen. But according to God, he speaks blasphemous things. And this one, who you know is called the Antichrist, is going to deceive the whole world. One of the things that is lacking in the church today is discernment. And I hope that you and I at Calvary Chapel, that we are discerning in the things that we see and hear. It's not everything, but be wise. Check it out through the scripture. Don't just believe what YouTube says and what this person is promoting and what's popular in the church or in, you know, uh, adopting culture, whatever it may be. You check it out with the word of God. So here, back to Romans chapter 11, Paul pointing out that the Jews had become so comfortable with their customs, their rituals, that they had put their trust in those things, and it actually became a snare for them, a trap for them. Uh, we have no need for Jesus. And Paul quoting from uh, Psalm 69, David speaking about their table becoming a snare. You see, in ancient time, a table, to be able to sit at a table, what does it speak of? It speaks of feasting. It speaks a blessing, a benefit. And to be able to do that day after day was a real blessing. Now, we sit at our table in our nation, 
and we eat every day, but it wasn't that way in the ancient world, and it's not that way in many parts of the world. You guys had the blessings. Chapter 9, verse 4, the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the law, the service of God, the promises. But you trusted in those things to give you a right standing before God rather than faith in his son who would come. Those things have become a hindrance to them and knowing God, a stumbling block. Their eyes become darkened so they no longer saw what God wanted and what he had done. Only a remnant saw And we've talked quite extensively that it can be true, the people that we know. Hey, I'm okay. I'm cool, man. I don't have anything to worry about because I was baptized in the church when I was a kid. Or I was confirmed in the church. Or I was raised in in a Christian home. But I want to ask you, where's your heart? Are those things becoming a snare to you? Are they a trap for you that you trust in those things? I talk to people all the time. Oh, I'm a good person. I'll be okay. I I went to church. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. But do you have relationship? Do you have relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you given your heart to him? Have you come in faith and realizing you need to be forgiven? So Paul says all that religiousness, uh, all that stuff has become a a stumbling stone. Uh, They have become a hindrance to you to coming to know Salvation through Jesus Christ. In verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And of course, God would extend salvation to the other nations, to the Gentiles. And the rejection of the gospel by the Jews, we're going to read, was riches for the Gentiles. But in Israel's stumbling, Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith, Paul would write to the Corinthians, the gospel becoming a stumbling stone and to the Jews, to the Gentiles, uh, it has become foolishness. It was all prophesied would happen by Isaiah the prophet and some of the other prophets of the Old Testament. But in the Gentiles coming to salvation, it would provoke the Jews to jealousy. They would see the Gentiles enjoying God's provision and forgiveness and his love, walking in his grace. Paul writes, it will provoke his people Israel to jealousy by the blessing of the Gentiles. And I want to remind you once again at this time in our study that you can provoke others to jealousy in a good way. We hear that word jealous, you know, or jealousy. We, we think of, you know, the way that we become jealous in a weird way, in a sinful way. But God is jealous for you. Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. And what he is saying in that is, I don't want you to go after other gods. I don't want you to go after the world. I love you. I'm jealous for you. I I desire for you to come to me and surrender to me. And you and I, that we can provoke others to jealousy by the reality of Jesus being evident in our lives. So when you go to work and when you gather with friends and, and you're out with the people that are linked to you in your life, do they see something of the reality of Jesus Christ? They're not going to see perfection. But do they see the joy of the Lord? Do they see the peace of God? Do they see that you're walking in wisdom? That there's something different about you? You're not caught up in the weirdness of the world. That there's strength in you. That, that there's something that is different than the world and it causes them to be jealous for that. I want that. That's being jealous in a good way. And Paul continues to talk about that, that the Gentiles being saved come to salvation and provokes them to jealousy. Verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? 
For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I may magnify my ministry. In verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul turns, you know, he, he says concerning the Gentiles, I was the apostle of the Gentiles. And of course we know that. Paul on those missionary journeys would give the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, responding to that message of whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus would be forgiven, would be saved, and Paul would pay a heavy price for that, wouldn't he? He was persecuted very heavily by his countrymen. They would consider Paul to be a traitor because he was telling them that salvation wasn't by the law of Moses. It wasn't by circumcision. And that created a great conflict with them towards Paul. And here, as he says, that the Gentiles being saved, uh, I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, my countrymen, and save some of them. They would see how the Gentiles were enjoying the, the love of the Lord, their relationship with him, living in his grace, dead to the law and religiousness and all of this. And it would provoke some of them. We know that's true. In the book of Acts, in chapter 18, as Paul was there in the synagogue, there in, in Corinth, he went to the Jews. They rejected him. He said, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet, and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He didn't go very far. What he does is he goes right next door to the synagogue, right next door. And all of a sudden, the church explodes. People are getting saved. Here are the Gentiles that are coming, and they're giving up their idol worship, their immorality. The church is exploding. And here are those in the synagogue. They're seeing that. And one particular, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, he's watching this all take place. He's hearing those Gentile believers, you know, singing praises to the Lord, how they're enjoying their relationship with him. So he comes over, and I'm sure Crispus is like, what's going on over there? He goes over, and he gets saved, the ruler of the synagogue. And we know that that can happen. You know, it was our last trip to Israel that uh, Shalom, who's the owner of uh, Coral Travel, who we do um, our trips with, and he arranges all of that, and I work with him. But just a, a, just a neat, neat man. And he was a colonel in the IDF, and, and he met us up in the Golan Heights, and he was talking about how he was in the Yom Kippur War, and we're overlooking Syria and the valley that would lead Paul into Damascus. At that point, we're closer to Damascus than we are to our hotel at the Sea of Galilee. That's how close we are. And he's telling us all this. And, and when we had dinner, he was with us. And I was sitting next to him the last night that we were in Jerusalem. And he was watching our group. He said, you know, this is what I love. And the group, they were laughing and they were enjoying themselves and talking about how God had touched them and what a wonderful trip it was to be able to go to Israel. And he said, that's what happened to me. You know, he grew up Jewish. He was, a, you know, in the military. And when I got around Christians and I saw their joy and their peace and, and their freedom in Christ, I wanted that. And what happened was exactly what Paul's writing about. It provoked him to jealousy. I wanted that. And he became a Christian. And then he said, I want to bring Christians to Israel. So we can provoke others to jealousy in a good way. And Paul writing about that, he goes on to write in verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For those who don't have Jesus, again, that, that we need to be born again. 
We were spiritually dead, as I've already mentioned, from Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. We were dead in sin and trespasses, but because of his great love, he has made us alive as we come to Christ. And many of you, I know that if I was to talk to you, you have that testimony that before I came to Christ, I was dead spiritually. And when I came to him and the Lord touched me and the Holy Spirit came into me, I felt alive for the very first time. I didn't realize how dead I was spiritually, how empty and unfulfilled, because that's what the world will bring to you eventually. God made us to worship him. We are created for his good pleasures. He made it for man to innately worship him. And there's a deep desire in everyone's heart. They're going to worship something. The old Bob Dylan song, some of us that are old enough to remember, wasn't that one of his songs that we're all going to worship something or someone? And it's true. And a lot of people try to find that fulfillment spiritually and satisfaction uh, in the world or in something else other than Jesus Christ, and it will not be found. The world will leave you empty and will leave you barren and will leave you unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And as we're going to see that the scripture tells us very clearly that this world is not going to get better, it's not going to get more rosy, it isn't going to be any of that. The world isn't going to come to an end because of climate change. But the world's going to come to an end because man was about ready to destroy himself. And as we're going to see that there's going to be a period of time that is so horrendous that Jesus said that if he had not cut the father the day short, that man would have destroyed himself. That the future of this world, in other words, what I'm saying, come join us on Wednesday night as we're going to go into that section of chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation that speaks of that final seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ called the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week. And it is that time that's going to be horrible. And the Jews are going to go through that time because we know that, as I said, God has a plan for the church and he has a plan for Israel. And I believe that the church, that the plan is what the scripture shows us, that he's going to rapture us out of this world. I will take you out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. That is a promise that he gave in Revelation chapter 3. He's going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. That we're going to be with the Lord in heaven, and in chapters 6 through 18, those seven years, he'll be pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. And it is in those times that Israel is going to be brought through it, and at the end of that time, that we know that their eyes are going to be opened up, and they're going to receive Jesus as their Messiah. They're going to realize that you are our Mashiach. But Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, Matthew chapter 24, spoken of Daniel the prophet, then you need to flee. Get off your rooftop. Pray it isn't on a Sabbath. Those are Jewish terms. Because there's going to be great tribulation as such the world has never seen or ever will see again. So they're going to go through that fire. They're going to go through the tribulation period. And then Paul says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, we'll talk about it more in detail next time, then all of Israel will be saved. You and I, we have a wonderful, wonderful future. 
In Ezekiel chapter 37, understand that the vision of dry bones, that Ezekiel looks out in the valley and there's all these bones and they come together and they're skeletons. And then all of a sudden, as the Lord begins to bring that wind upon the skeletons, that the muscles and, and the tissues and the skin comes on those, uh, those skeletons and their corpse. And then can these be made alive, Ezekiel? And he said, you know, Lord. And he breathed life into them. And it speaks of a national restoration, that they would come alive. They've been out of the land for 2,000 years. And all of a sudden, these dead bones, a nation that was dead, comes alive. We've seen that be fulfilled in our generation. Absolutely amazing, just as the scripture said. And Amos says that when they come back into the land, they're not going to be plucked out again. And not only is it a, a national Israel restoration, but there's going to be a spiritual restoration. They are going to be, as a nation, saved at that time as they go through the tribulation period. So these are things that we're going to talk about. And this is what Paul's touching on. And in verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Some differing thoughts and on this and on who exactly is the first fruits. And I think that a, a good suggestion is it's the earliest Christians that were indeed Hebrew believers. They were Jews. The day of Pentecost, Peter stands up. He preaches. 3,000 got saved. A few days after that, 2,000 more got saved. Those were Jewish believers. Those were Hebrew believers. And so if their conversion was good and beneficial for the Gentiles, how much better it will be when the full harvest of Israel is brought in. Some see the first fruits as a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation. Israel being restored is going to come. And perhaps it could be that, that as in chapter 4 of Romans, that remember Paul made the case that Abraham was justified not because of works, not because of the law of Moses, not because of circumcision. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He came by faith. And we know that in the restoration that Israel being restored is going to come by what? Faith. Will you keep that in mind? Because also another doctrine that comes floating around sometimes is that Israel, there's a dual covenant, that Israel is saved just because they're descendants of, of Abraham. And that's what the religious leaders thought. And, and that they're saved because they're God's chosen people. And, and that's how salvation comes to them. Listen. There's no dual covenant when it comes to salvation. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. They will be saved at that time because their eyes are open to Jesus. Will you be established in this? There's no other name which a man or woman must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ coming to him in faith. There is no other salvation. Are we clear on that? And it was, you know, Jesus that said, I am the way, definite article, the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So they're going to come to faith in, in Jesus Christ when they're restored. In verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do not boast, remember that you do not support the root, that the root supports you. And you will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. 
And well said, verse 20, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you. Paul telling us that, that Israel's rejection of Jesus has been a blessing for us Gentiles. Israel's provoked a jealousy by the Gentiles coming to salvation. And Paul points out how much more we will benefit when they do come to Jesus. So make sure, make sure, listen, that you don't boast against the Jews or look down on the Jews. Don't be haughty. You don't support the root. The root supports you. And it is by God's grace that we've been grafted in and we've been grafted in by faith. Not because we're so great. Not because we're worthy or deserving. We stand by faith. There has been a remnant of Jews that have been saved by faith. And the unbelieving Jews have been cut off because of unbelief. And in verse 21, again, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. What is he saying in that? If the Gentiles, that is those not of Israel, are unbelieving, they will be cut off just as much as unbelieving Israel. Listen, Romans chapter 11 leaves no room for anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, that has been growing. It's growing in Europe. It's even growing amongst our own policymakers and leaders. It is even growing in some parts of the church. There are things that I've seen even in this last week of those who post things about how evil the Jews are and, and, and don't support them and all these things. And you got to listen to this YouTube and awful things. There have been things in church history, some church leaders that have said terrible things about the Jews. And listen, God is saying, I have a plan for them. Don't be looking down on them. Don't be haughty. Know this, that they've been cut off. If you have unbelief, then know that you'll be cut off as well. Have you ever talked to somebody that they say, oh, those people over there? And I think, well, what about you? Are you a believer? Have you come to Christ? Because you'll be cut off just as much as they will. And we need to keep things in right perspective. So Romans chapter 11 gives no room for anti-Semitism and how evil the Jews are and God has cursed them and cast them away. They need to go back and read the scriptures. And again, test everything through the word of God. But as we finish up here, verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut off uh, out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? God is good, and his goodness includes us Gentiles being grafted into the natural olive tree, and we as believers need to continue in that goodness, continuing in his love and grace, and the apostle writes that God is able to graft them in Israel again, and God will restore them once again, and God has not cast away Israel permanently. And Israel has been cut off nationally because of unbelief. God is able to bring them back into the kingdom of God, bring them back and graft them back in because of belief. And God wants to do that work to those that we know. To those that we know, he wants to bring them in. Because it's his desire that none should perish, but all come to repentance in Jesus Christ. So again, as we close it up here right now, I just want to encourage you. 
be praying for those around you, that their eyes may be opened up, that the Lord touches their hearts, gives them understanding, that you and I would have a heart for those who are lost, and that also that we would know that the promises that he's given to us, he's going to keep those promises. Amen? That encourages me, just as he's going to keep his promise that he gave to Israel to restore them someday. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these verses, and it's so important for us to be grounded in your word and your truth. And, Lord, I pray for us that we would be ones that... Um, that first of all, I just want to pray if there's anyone here that there has been a hindrance, a stumbling stone because you think you don't need Jesus, that you're good enough or religious enough or whatever the case may be, that we would all understand and that you would understand. I pray, Lord, if there's any blindness, that you would take that blindness away right now to anyone who may be listening to this message even if it's live stream or on the radio later. That Jesus Christ is your salvation. It is belief in him. It isn't religion. And it isn't in your own righteousness. It is coming to Christ Jesus and surrendering your life to him. Realizing that you've fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus came to bring you life. As you come in faith, recognizing your need for him, the son of God who died for your sins. He was put into a tomb and he rose again. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem because he conquered sin and death. He is your salvation. There's none other. And whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Please, if that means anyone to anyone who's listening right now, don't ignore that. It's the most important decision you will ever make. I need forgiveness. I need to surrender to Jesus. It's about relationship. Having him as you repent be the Lord and Savior of your life <clears throat> because he alone is Lord and he alone is the Savior of the world. You can come to him just as you are right now, but sincerely turning to him. Jesus, I come and, and I confess that I'm a sinner. I come and I surrender my life to you. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you're Lord. You rose from the grave. And I ask that this would be my gospel, that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And Lord, thank you for opening my eyes. And I want to know you and walk with you and enjoy you. And Lord, be established in your love. And I thank you that it was proven to me as Jesus went to the cross. I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, sincerely, welcome to the family of God, but also as we have the prayer...